Welcome to Clinically Thinking. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. This is a podcast by clinical psychologists for clinical psychologists. It will introduce you to experts in a wide range of fields relevant to the practice of clinical psychology, and I hope you'll find it engaging and informative. My name is Dr. Nina Cook. Today on Clinically Thinking, we're going to discuss ADHD. Increasingly, we're learning that ADHD doesn't only affect children. It's not unusual for people diagnosed with ADHD as children to continue wrestling with the same issues throughout their lives. And more and more adults are recognising for the first time in adulthood that ADHD may be behind their long-term struggles. In adults, ADHD often presents with a range of other psychological conditions and its symptoms are easily entangled with manifestations of trauma, anxiety or borderline personality disorder. If we learn to recognise when ADHD is part of the problem, we may be on the path to helping our clients live happier and more successful lives. For me, there's also a more personal angle to this discussion. My brilliant, creative sister-in-law has a diagnosis of ADHD and is treated with medication. My intelligent, determined husband has been diagnosed, but treatment for him is complicated by some other health issues. And in 2020, our wonderful daughter was diagnosed at eight years with ADHD based on a full cognitive assessment and observation. Since my daughter's assessment, I've started to notice signs and symptoms more and more in my adult clients, but I feel I'm often making the suggestion of further assessment, knowing it's hard to come by, and then not knowing how to adapt my practice to cater to or assist with this issue. So that's how I came to have an interest in adult ADHD, and I'm very excited to be joined by Heidi Sumich today to have a conversation about it. Heidi is a clinical psychologist who runs Mindcare Centre, recently relocated to Mullumbimby from Central Sydney. Heidi came from the music industry into the world of psychology in the 1980s and has had a variety of clinical and research roles in public and private settings. She co-authored the first edition of the Management of Mental Disorders textbook, which is now in its fifth edition. She's been a part of the New South Wales Executive of the APS Clinical College, the Australian Association for CBT, and was involved in founding the Australian Clinical Psychology Association. Heidi is also a member of the Australian ADHD Professionals Association. She is co-director of Mindcare with her husband, Dr Hugh Morgan, who is a psychiatrist who has an interest in ADHD and teaches psychiatrists and GPs about the disorder. Their practice has gained a reputation as a referral option for ADHD in adults, which is why I'm excited to be speaking with Heidi today about adult ADHD. Heidi, welcome to Clinically Thinking. Hi, Nina. I'm very glad to be here. That's fantastic. Thank you. Uh, I wondered, how did you first become interested in adult ADHD? Uh, Look, I got interested actually through my husband after a psychiatrist who saw a lot of adolescents with ADHD closed his practice pretty much overnight and told them all to see my husband who knew nothing about ADHD. And so he had all these young adults coming to him and realised on assessing them that A, he had to upskill on ADHD and B, they came with a lot of other disorders. And he looked around for people to help provide care for both their ADHD and the other disorders and had trouble finding clinical psychologists who 
who had expertise. So he said, you have to learn. Oh, okay. <laughs> Over to you. I need somewhere to send it. You need to, you need to learn. I had actually done a child ADHD placement internally in the university when I was doing my master's degree at Sydney with Caroline Stevenson, who's probably one of Australia's leading ADHD um, clinical psychologists. And um, I think I had, you know, I had a bit of basics in understanding children with ADHD, but at no point did they ever mention that adults can have it too. So I'd had a bit of grounding there and I did a lot of hard study very quickly. I think there's a statistic that's floated around that about 50% of people kind of recover from ADHD as their brain matures. The statistics I've heard are probably between 50 to 50% to two-thirds um, continue to have ADHD at a diagnostic level into adulthood. So the other third, maybe up to a half, might either outgrow, outgrow with brain maturation um, symptoms that would warrant a diagnosis, but they may still have subclinical um, aspects. So they might have adapted around it, their brain might have matured or their life might have adapted around it, that it's no longer impairing that. Mm. Remember, for a diagnosis, you need the symptoms and you need impairment. Mm-hmm. So what would you see in an adult with ADHD? The most common word that makes me think of ADHD is procrastination which you will not find in the diagnostic criteria. But that, whenever I hear that word, I think, right, okay, I need to look for ADHD. And we screen routinely for everybody who comes to the practice anyway, so you're already armed with some rating scales which would, you know, highlight, um, you know, need to look into that area. But that word procrastination, difficulty, so difficulty getting started on tasks, difficulty completing them, um, difficulty with time management, so having a sense of time. So difficulty estimating how long things take, difficulty having a sense of how much time has passed so that they can judge their actions and how long they persist with something. Um, There's difficulty maintaining your focus on the task at hand. I think ADHD is often, you know, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder I think is a terrible word for it, terrible name. Um, There's often no lack of attention. It's about misdirected attention which I think they can pay attention very well when it's interesting, when they have a sense of accomplishment, but when it's boring, there's a real difficulty motivating to action in the face of boredom. And Mm. then you've got, so that's a lot of inattentive parts, but there's a lot of hyperactive, impulsive parts. So there's difficulty inhibiting, stopping behaviours when you need to stop them, stopping the iPad to go to bed. Um, It could be stopping eating, stopping, you know, spending money. There's impulsivity not thinking through clearly, not being able to plan ahead into the future and think through, um, you know, the, the consequences of actions. These are, it can be intelligent people, but the impulsivity means they don't always uh, stop and, and, and plan and think what they need to do next and the consequences. Did you always routinely assess or did that, no, was that a decision? No, no, we never assessed at all. No, okay. No, we, 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 we've always used a rating scale called the Psychiatric Diagnostic Screening Questionnaire, which, um, and it, it's, it's actually pretty out of date now because it's based on, I think, DSM-4 criteria. Um, but, it, you know, it's a good screener for, for depression, PTSD, anxiety disorders, health um, 
sort of um, you know, somatic symptom disorders. And if people fill it out before the appointment, you've actually got a quite a large array of information, but it doesn't include bipolar disorder or ADHD. And once we started seeing people at the practice, we started screening every single person who comes in. So what do you use? I'm sure everyone would like to know. Yeah, we use the ASRS, the Adult um, ADHD Self-Report Scale. It's, it's simple, it's easy, um, easy to score. Uh, it, it is a screener. It, people can come up high on that questionnaire and they don't have ADHD because there might be, you know, sometimes I mean, depression will impact on the ability to concentrate. Anxiety can make people seem more restless and fidgety. Um, so you do have to, it's, it's an indication you need to then do your clinical assessment. So for the outset of treatment, you've screened everybody using their ASRS and somebody can present high on that uh, and not necessarily have ADHD. How would you distinguish that? What would you be looking for? I suppose some of the common disorders, sort of differential diagnoses to look for um, could be bipolar disorder. Uh, could be borderline personality disorder, could be a trauma condition, um, could be head injury. So I think there are a lot of overlaps but also points of difference. With ADHD, it is lifelong. You know, they have had it for all of their life, so you shouldn't see, uh, you know, periods of remission as you might see in mania where people can be quite impulsive, they can have impaired judgment so with ADHD, you're looking for consistency. It, this, this is them all the way back from the beginning of their life. I think that, again, some of the impulsivity aspects you can see in borderline personality disorder. And, um, again, that, then that is sort of consistent across the lifespan. But you wouldn't necessarily, they're not necessarily complaining of procrastination or poor management of time or not finishing tasks. It's more the emotional dysregulation which is also really common in ADHD, but not in the diagnostic criteria. So mm. there's a lot in the criteria that, um, that you see commonly in ADHD, so a lot, lot, lot in ADHD that you see commonly that isn't in the criteria and emotional dysregulation is one of those things. Mm. So why do you think it is important, given that there's such crossover, why is it important that we identify ADHD when it's there? ADHD is one of the most treatable disorders that we have, in, um, certainly, in ter- certainly in terms of medication. Um, medication is the first-line treatment for moderate to severe ADHD, and it has, it has a much better response to medication than just about any other psychiatric disorder, much better than for depression or anxiety. So here we have a disorder that by definition causes impairment, and it's very treatable. So that's a good reason to treat it because when it's untreated, it impacts on every aspect of a person's life. It, um, people with untreated ADHD are more likely to, to not finish school, to not finish university degrees. They're more likely to slip from one job to another. They're more likely to be sacked. They're more likely to end up in jail. There's a majority of people in jail have ADHD. They're very, very high rates. Uh, it's likely to be comorbid with a possibly comorbid with a learning disorder. Um, it impacts relationships. People are more likely to be divorced and to have difficulty with family breakdowns. They're um, more likely to have just about every other DSM diagnosis. They're, you know, the comorbidity is high. Um, 
and they're more likely to, to have car accidents and accidents. So there's a lot of reasons for treating ADHD. They're also less likely to respond and do well with, other, with treatment for other disorders if you haven't taken into account the impact that ADHD might have on, on attendance at sessions, um, not doing homework, not following through, not following through on self-care, dental care, pap smears. Mm. It, it affects every aspect of life. It's treatable. And if you miss it, then... I think you're doing somebody a great disservice. I have an interest in trauma and I noticed when I was looking you up for this podcast that you do too. Um, So for me, sometimes I think I've seen everything as trauma and I know that childhood trauma does change the way our brain Mm. uh, is structured and functions and I've wondered whether there's a difference. The other part of this is that all the adults I know with ADHD are traumatized. Um, and then I have my little girl who there's been times of stress. It hasn't been perfect, but you know, she was observing her. She was hyperactive from Mm. the moment she was born. Mm. Um, and I just wondered your perspective on that. You know, we, is it coming from trauma for a proportion of people? First of all, I'm curious, yeah, I'm curious as to the trauma that you're seeing in your ADHD patients. I think it's because they've been longer-term clients um, who I'm aware of their trauma history and then as I've become more aware of ADHD, I've asked a few more questions. So some of them are related. Some of it is because they couldn't concentrate, couldn't be like other kids and that drew negative attention from caregivers and that created a cycle where um, there was verbal abuse or physical abuse. Yes. Um, Other times there's people growing up uh, with loss of parents and uh, domestic violence. Um, I think it's because I've come to the ADHD after I already know the trauma history that's made me wonder what's the etiology yeah, it, look, it's it's not uncommon that well, you come to the ADHD after everything else has been seen. Um, ADHD increases the risk of having PTSD, um, whether it's from misadventure, impulsivity. You know, I've seen people where they turn up with a broken arm one day and they've got a bung knee the other day, they're climbing over a fence drunk and fell over. And so just physical injuries, but but, you know, emotional trauma. Um, that might come from car accidents or other things. So they're more, they're more likely, unfortunately, you know, they're more likely to be sexually assaulted. Mm. Um, and, again, some of this comes down to impulsive decisions perhaps, um, risk-taking behaviour. Some of the things that actually make them, uh, they can be fun, interesting, vibrant people and adventurous. And I, I like to think about hunter-gatherers and, and where we'd be if we, there weren't people who were brave enough to go out and, and explore the edge of the world and sail off it. Um, you know, I think we need people who have that that slightly more risk-taking aspect, not that everyone with ADHD is like that. But, mm. you know, they can be, you know, quite adventurous and interested and, and you know, disliking boredom and looking for, looking for, you know, something exciting to do. So there is more trauma. But I think, as you mentioned too, it runs in families. It's one of the most heritable disorders that we have. It's second only to schizophrenia. It's as heritable as height. So when it runs in families and it can make a child's behaviour perhaps difficult for a parent to manage and a parent may have ADHD and then 
finds it difficult to be consistent with their parenting skills, um, then, you know, sometimes there can be, you know, trauma within families. Um, and along with that, you know, can sometimes come things like substance use, which can inhibit behaviour. So, the, you know, the, the real problem may be more comorbid substance use, those sorts of things. I think trauma is something we do see a lot of in ADHD. I think your question, though, you know, like could it be, I mean, could ADHD be trauma? Um, I, I, I tried to write this article once about, about ADHD and send it off to, you know, to a journal to get, to get published and their reply was, well, you know, we don't really believe in ADHD, it's all just trauma. You know, that's, mm. <laughs> I was very miffed and, and, I, and I, mm. I didn't actually end up pursuing it because of other reasons, but there has been that perception that it is trauma. And it comes back to the family and to to some root cause that if you can um, deal with this trauma, you'll be able to, to help the person. And sure, treat trauma, but ADHD is not a trauma disorder. It's a, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder. It's largely genetically transmitted um, and it can accompany trauma. I love hearing that as a parent, I have to tell you. Mm. That's, mm. <laughs> there's a book by Gabor Mate called Scattered Minds. Uh, that, that's his theory as well, as somebody with ADHD and with children with ADHD, that people with ADHD are hypersensitive from birth yeah. and then it doesn't take much trauma to change their brain function yeah. in the way that we see with the disorganisation and, and, and I guess the... Um, the lack of reward from the environment, you know, the, the yes. kind of lower dopamine reactivity. Yep. Um, it, it, but it's interesting. There's a whole nother school of thought, isn't there, that this is a this is a developmental disorder that's going to occur in the absence of trauma if if the person has inherited that. Yeah. I guess I'd like to make it really clear that an ADHD is a neurodevelopmental disorder. It is not a trauma disorder. Um, that is not the current thinking, that is not, you know, that's out of step with, with the, the breadth of, of evidence that we have to date. There's, it's one of the most studied disorders. There's thousands and thousands of articles. And so, you know, it's not a trauma disorder, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder that can be associated with trauma. Mm. And I think if you, if you think about the children with ADHD, they're, they're unwittingly doing things, you know, sometimes doing things wrong. You know, they're not listening, so they're not doing what they're told to do by their parents. Um, they forget to bring home their homework or to take it back to school, so they don't hand it in and then, then they may be in trouble with the teacher. They might be a bit chatty. They might be moving in and out of their chair a bit more. Um, they get used to being in trouble and, mm. and it, it can be damaging to their self-esteem. So they're, you know, they're usually trying really hard. They, they, their brains, they're working much harder than the rest of everybody else. Um, but, you know, they're still finding it hard to be on top of things and that can make them quite sensitive, you know, to criticism um, and can be, you know, unhelpful for self-esteem development. Mm. I think that the process of seeking a diagnosis as an adult can be really uh, validating and de-shaming for a lot of people who have struggled with yes. these problems yep. for a long time so I you know 
the idea of routinely screening for that makes a lot of sense. And as you say, because it's so treatable, mm. um, I guess it's a really efficient way of helping someone if that problem is present rather than kind of delaying that or ignoring it or seeing if everything else um, improving makes it better. Um, There's certainly been cases of social anxiety that have presented and on mm -hmm. assessment you think, well, I think they've got ADHD. And, I mean, they would appear to have social anxiety but when when you really tease it out, they're tuning out of conversations. They're not listening when someone's talking to them. They're off thinking about what am I going to say next or, you know, something else in their mind or something else in the room. They've been distracted. And then they worry, how do I rejoin the conversation? I didn't really hear what they said. If I say this, maybe it's been said. Maybe that'll be silly. And so they can have what looks like a secondary social anxiety. And I have seen that clear up when their ADHD is treated. Um, so there can be concerns about treating ADHD with medication because it is stimulant-based, because it can be abused, and perhaps because people feel like it will fundamentally change them. In your observation, would most people find the medication manageable in their lives or are there people for whom it doesn't work out? About 70% of people benefit from medication for ADHD, but it can come with side effects. And there are, so A, there are some people who just don't, they don't get the benefit. They take it and they get negative effects. They might feel anxious, their heart might race, they might get dry mouth, they might, um, it might just not do anything for them. And there are a number of different medications to try and that's worth talking about as well. But they might try medication that it side effects or it doesn't work. For people who do take medication, uh, I think the beauty of ADHD medication is that you can take it if and when you need it. It's not right. like an antidepressant where you have to take it and wait some weeks and then if you miss a dose, then in a few doses it stops being as effective. You can take it for as short as four hours to get something done that really requires focus. You can take it that, uh, you know, long acting that lasts all day. You can take it one day of the month. You can take it every day of the year. So you have, you have enormous control over when you need the benefit and whether you take it or not. Um, but some people don't get benefits, some people don't like it, and a lot of young people will say they feel it changes their personality. And I think this is a really big issue that it, it, it because they feel calmer when it works, this is a thing too, how do you know when it works? You know, people say things like, I just feel calmer, I can think more clearly, the noise has gone, just the noise in my head, the static has just settled. It's easier for me to pick something I need to focus on and stay focused on it instead of being scattered all over the place. Um, and so you know, I think when it works, people know it and they know it quickly and they can know it within 20 or 30 minutes. I mean, it's pretty marvellous. <laughs> I mean, depending on the type of medication they take, you can get a benefit very quickly. And, yes, it is a substance that can be abused. So you need to be careful about how you prescribe it, who you prescribe it to. For somebody who has an active substance addiction, you can't prescribe it. However, it has been shown to be helpful in helping people recover from you know, some substance addictions. Um, but 
it can be misdirected. The long-acting stimulants are much less likely to be misdirected and abused. They take about an hour to work instead of the, you know, the, the more rapid onset. Crushing them and snorting them isn't, isn't that effective. So they tend to be, you know, less likely to be diverted. And for that reason, that's one of the reasons they tend to be first line now. The long-acting stimulants are considered first line in a lot of international treatment guidelines. Um, because they last all day and they're less likely to be diverted. Um, you know, I think that having a controlled substance that has been very widely tested, um, lots of studies, no evidence that, that it is dangerous um, taking it as prescribed unless there's a pre-existing significant heart problem in them or the family. Yeah. There's also been a study that looked at the the brains of people who have taken stimulant medication from a young age and those who haven't. And one of the studies actually showed that the brain had, had normalised to a greater degree among the children who took the stimulants compared to the children who didn't. I think that was Shaw, maybe uh, it might have been somebody Shaw who wrote that article. Um, so there's a lot of interesting research out there. And it's funny sometimes, I'm a clinical psychologist, I don't prescribe medication. And it's a really interesting field to be in because it's a bit like bipolar disorder. I see it the same way. I mean, if you saw somebody with bipolar disorder, would you be sending them to a psychiatrist for a mood-stabilising medication? Yes, because they're not going to get better without it. Yeah, they're not going to get better. Because of the harm to them, yeah, the potential risk of harm while they're manic. Yeah, Yeah. and it's a difficult thing, I think, being a clinical psychologist and, and sometimes feeling like, one of the first things I say to people is, well, look, you know, medication is the first line of treatment. I don't prescribe it, but, but that's what the research tells us. And, and I spend a lot of my time telling people to get medication, which I know there are a lot of clinical psychologists and psychologists, registered psychologists, who are, you know, they're sort of more opposed to medication and some are just, you know, use it if you need it, but, um, you know, let's see if we can avoid it. I say let's try it and see what it does because it's it's your first line of defence. Especially, yeah, especially as you say, this is not a two-week commitment to feeling crappy while you see if an uh, antidepressant yeah. is going to work. This is a much more efficient method of seeing if there's a treatment that can help. What it does is if it helps people concentrate better, if it helps them be more likely to finish what they start, more likely to turn up to appointments, because you can't help somebody who doesn't show because they got the date wrong or they were running, you know, I had somebody who would regularly run 40 minutes late for every appointment. And it's like, well, what can I do in 10 minutes? And then the strategies that you can offer as a clinical psychologist are more likely to be effective. Um, you, you, can, you can deal with the self-esteem. You can deal with the, you know, the, the CBT strategies for, for ADHD. They don't, they don't cure ADHD. They help people manage their ADHD. So, you know, organisational strategies, whether it's, you know, diaries and to-do lists and wearing a watch and learning about time estimation and, I mean, a whole raft of things that people can do, um, you know, if somebody's brain is actually better tuned, if you like, they can make more use of those strategies. Do you say a little bit more about CBT for ADHD? I know you've just run through a list of, yeah. of ideas there, but what would be... What would be a typical kind of approach? Yeah, look, some of the, the key strategies, are they're pretty basic behavioural strategies that, that all clinical psychologists can do. 
they're not rocket science. Um, if you just turn your head in the right direction, and, and I've got a bunch of books here that I can give you the, the titles of, which are pretty much how-to manuals on what to do. Mm-hmm. Uh, so you know, I usually start with time. I think that's a really big one because it's often one that, that intrudes into the consulting room because they're late often. Um, I mean, that, that to me already is a, somebody who's consistently late. I would be screening for ADHD if I hadn't done it already. So time is where I often start about how do you, how do you manage time? Do you wear a watch? A lot of people rely on their iPhone, their, their phone, their smartphone. They pick it up to look at the time and, oh, there's a text message and they get buried in something else. A watch goes everywhere with you. You glance at it. There's no distractions. How do they apportion time across the day and decide how they fill their time for the day? A lot of successful people have a plan for the day. They get up and they know what they want to do today. They've got some sense, written or otherwise, of this is what my day is going to look like. And it's interesting how a lot of people with ADHD haven't developed a routine. I mean, the notion of, of getting up and, you know, you go to the bathroom and you have a shower and you get dressed and you have your breakfast. So your routine groups a bunch of activities together that you get into the habit of doing. And a lot of people with ADHD don't have those routines. A lot of people don't shower every day, I and mean, a lot do. And again, I, you know, I'm, I don't want to make out make out that everyone with ADHD is like this or the same. There's an expression: if you've seen one person with autism, you've seen one person with autism. I'd say it's the same for ADHD. You've seen one person with ADHD. You've seen one person with ADHD. Um, mm. But you know, a lot of them. You're talking to them about showering every day. You're talking to them about um, brushing their teeth twice a day. Uh, some people haven't brushed their teeth for months. Um, so you're really talking about routine. Um, you're talking about uh, so how are they spending their day? What are they choosing to do? Where's their, I look at a to, a, to do, a to-do list as a menu of possible things that could be in the day-to-day. And some people feel really overwhelmed at making a to-do list because they look at it and they go, oh, you know, just I feel sick looking at it. <laughs> And I try to say, well, a good to-do list is never empty. It's always got stuff in it. And it's your place to go to find things that you might have forgotten and then you've got the choice as to whether you put it in today or not. And then you think about, well, where in today would I put it? How do I prioritise? Of all the things on my list, you know, I often talk A, B, C, D. A is due today, B is due soon this week, C is due at some point you know, in the future and D is delegate or don't do. Um, I really like all of that. I like how there's options for don't do built into it mm. because I think so many people with ADHD have just had repeated experiences of failing, you know, thinking I should be doing this, I should be able to do that, this should be easier for me, I'm lazy, I'm just not disciplined enough. Yes, they go up with that, yeah. To have something that is normalizing not getting into everything I think is really helpful yeah plan small it's better to have a a small activity and to succeed at it than to have a huge one and not even start because it's so overwhelming you know the procrastination that comes in um, with some colleagues Madeline O'Reilly and Jonathan Hassel Madeline's another clinical psychologist Jonathan Hassel's an ADHD coach we've been looking at this sort of model of procrastination and ADHD and how we feel a lot of the procrastination comes from an initial feeling state 
that when you contemplate doing a task, there's a really aversive emotional state about it. And so people can be masters of avoidance. They just shut down. They either do something else that just feels good instead of doing that task or they might do some productive procrastination. They'll do empty the dishwasher or put on some laundry. It might be useful but it's not the thing they need to be doing. And often you need to get them to cue into their emotional state. How do you feel when you think about doing this task? You know, why do you feel this way? What, is, it, is it that um, maybe you don't have the organisation down? You can't see how to get from the task from A to B and they might need help actually breaking, breaking down the task into smaller pieces and seeing the steps, visualising the steps. And they might have trouble with the on-ramping, with the getting themselves activated and motivated to start. And, and that might be sleep is a huge thing. I spend so much of my time talking about sleep. You know, it's your, it's your superpower and, and a lot of people are not sleeping. They're going to bed they're going to bed really late or they're lying in bed on devices and, you know, they so sleep becomes a big part of the equation. So procrastination might be one of the signs that alert us to ADHD in our clients. What might be some other behaviours that we might see that might alert us to the impulsivity kind of features of ADHD? Lots of difficulties with things like online shopping, um, could be gambling, internet addiction in general, uh, could be internet porn use. So sometimes people will uh, go online shopping and they'll pop things in their cart and they'll never actually buy it but they feel good having done that or they will uh, actually buy the item and when it gets delivered to their home they don't open it, they send it back uh, for a refund but they've had their dopamine hit and you know this is a lot about the dopamine system of the brain and it's a reward center and so anything like that that's prone to addiction you know, it activates that reward center of their brain so they can have difficulties and you can see it happening and affecting their sleep so that's the other thing difficulties of sleep does that come from the dopamine oh not so as much well? dopamine system but uh, there's a up to 50 70% can have a delayed sleep phase disorder so they don't get tired at night time the way other people do. It's, it's dark, it's quiet, there are fewer distractions, they can really get absorbed, hyper-focus in things of interest, not sleepy, and then they stay up too late. They just don't get tired. So they might go to bed at 2, 3, 4 in the morning and then they can't get up the next day, they're tired and you know, sleep being a superpower, they've lost a lot of superpower, they might sleep in late the next day. Um, so difficulties with sleep. Is, um, is the norm rather than the exception. So what you think might be insomnia might be uh, a sign of ADHD. I've had a number of clients for whom they might have just developed workarounds for their routine and they've mm. kind of managing that. Then when they're trying to do something that's a bit more complex, like study for uni, that's when they're coming undone. I have, I'm thinking of a particular client whose workaround for attending to her uni work once she recognised that she has ADHD was that she realised she could study if she also had a movie playing in the background and music on. Mm. And my response to that was, well, whatever works. But another part of me says, well, that's not good for her, you know, attentional capacity or um, 
you know, maybe I should be helping her somehow to do that without those other factors. But I just wonder what you think about that kind of a strategy. Oh, look, it's really interesting and a lot of people do it and it does help a lot of people and I'm, I'm all for it if it works, like, like your initial impression. Um, it's a weird thing about working memory because when you think about ADHD, I mean, even in terms of what is it, I mean, yes, it's a neurodevelopmental disorder, so it has to do with the structures of the you know, brain, the neuronal firing, the availability of neurotransmitters. But we tend to think of it as a, as a, a disorder of executive functioning. Some people... Purist scientists don't like that idea. But when we talk about your executive functions, we're talking about the, um, the parts of your brain that are responsible for coordinating um, meaningful and directed action. So being able to come up with an idea to do something, being able to plan the steps, you know, your planning capacities, being able to manage time so that you get it done in the right time and your direction is attention is directed in the right place for as long as it needs to be. It's about prioritising, do I do this or do I do that? It's about simultaneously inhibiting other behaviours that are not relevant to what I'm doing now. So inhibiting, even inhibiting sounds and, and, and sights. You know, somebody's walking past, I need to not attend to the person walking past and stay focused on what I'm doing. And so we're constantly um, bringing our attention back and this even leads into the talk about mindfulness meditation. Um, and so, so if you think about ADHD as a disorder of executive functioning, anything that involves like the conductor of the orchestra being there to tell all the parts what to do, it's like the conductor's gone to sleep. So these parts aren't communicating, they're not functioning in tandem, they're not supporting each other. And you know, I think that's where a lot of people can fall down. That, that the notion of studying with a, um, something playing, you know, you get people who will play their favourite TV show over and over and over and over and they might turn the screen away or they'll have it playing on their phone or something so they can't see it but they can hear it and it's comforting. It's like there's, there's some company, they're not alone and because they know it so well they don't really need to listen to it but there's a part of their working memory that's working a bit harder and this is the interesting thing that sometimes people's concentration is better when they are taxing their working memory a little bit more. I would observe that with my little girl. She's thankfully her teacher is fine with this, but she's allowed to have a fidget in class because she just mm. needs that. Oh, she's hyperactive as well, but she just needs that part of her mind a little bit occupied on something else so that she can attend to someone yeah. just speaking to her. Yep. Uh, which is similar, I think, to the watching the movie, you know, or having the movie on in the background while you're trying yeah. to study. It's just you you can have a there's some part of your mind occupied enough with something to not let it keep bouncing yeah. off to other things. There have been something studies like looking at fidget spinners and chewing gum. And the study I looked at at fidget spinners didn't find that it made, had any benefit in, in helping concentration in ADHD and nor did chewing gum. I don't know who came up with chewing gum. However, there are so many people who benefit from doodling when they're studying. And if you think about all the kids in class who might have been doodling and the parents might, the teachers might have, you know, said, you're not concentrating, stop that. And it's like a sign of a boring class is lots of doodles. I mean, this is interesting. We've probably all done that. This class is boring. How do I get myself more, you know, motivated and interested? How do I stay on task here? You doodle. So I encourage people to doodle in lectures and even at work and even talk to their bosses and say, look, you know, if you see me doodling, it's not that I'm not interested. 
it's how I, it helps me think. You mentioned mindfulness meditation. Uh, are we going to be looking at a group of people who are going to be less keen to try mindfulness meditation, even though it can help? So that's lots of parts to that question. Um, yes, the, the common thing people say is, oh, look, I, I've tried mindfulness meditation and I can't do it. It's too hard. I can't, I can't keep my mind where it's meant to be. And that gets into that whole discussion about it's not really about keeping your mind where it needs to be. It's about the practice of bringing it back and bringing it back and bringing it back. Um, I think when um, Williams and Teasdale and Co started their, their MBCT, originally they were going to call it attentional control training, and it sort of they renamed it something else. But that was the original, from what I understand, the original name. So I do think it can be, you know, anecdotally helpful. But I read somewhere recently, I think it might have been in the Nice Guidelines, that that mindfulness meditation studies didn't show any particular benefit in ADHD. So, I mean, the way I look at it, as I said before, ADHD likes friends. It, a lot of other disorders come with it. And when you treat ADHD, you really have to treat everything. You can't just, it's not like you treat one disorder, I'm really good at, you know, a trauma disorder. You kind of have to do everything because you see everything. And mindfulness meditation can be helpful for lots of things, not just the ADHD. And some people love it. ADHD aside, they really, they really enjoy it. I noticed a, an article recently on body doubling. Like buddying up? The idea that performance is enhanced for people with ADHD if they just have somebody else in the room or in the vicinity. Yeah. And I've certainly yeah. observed that in my household. Yep, yep, T totally. Having, I often say to people if a task is really difficult, can you have somebody come and sit with you while you do it? Um, just the presence of another person makes them feel less alone. It's more stimulating. It's maybe, I don't know, they're not missing out. They've got, they've, often they can be quite sociable. Um, and so having somebody there can be soothing and helpful. And it can also improve accountability. So the person knows if they get up and go off task, and there's a sense of just needing an external form of accountability other than, them, than themselves. So a parent is really good at, at performing that role, you know, being present. Um, and I, I was actually not. thinking of my husband, actually, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> who can struggle with a big to-do list mm. when he's by himself but then kind of churn through it just if we're in the house somewhere. Absolutely. It's just interesting to me and I thought when I read that, I'm like, wow, okay, I wonder how that works or why that is. But It sounds like the foundation to the effectiveness of all of that is an acceptance that this is the way the person is hardwired yeah, and that it's not a failing, of course, and it's not it's a difficulty, but it's not a, you know, a moral deficiency in any way. And we just need to kind of think about what's going to work for you and find ways to adapt life to the way that you function and adapt your functioning to the particular demands of your life. Yeah, to totally. It's funny how sometimes I've assessed people, they might not have come for ADHD, but for something else. And, you know, because I included my assessment, it's, it's like, you sort of meet a lot of the criteria, but you're not impaired by it. And if you're not impaired, you know, you don't really diagnose it. And 
I think some people have managed to structure their life in a way that they've found ways to compensate for the things that they find difficult. Some you see some like barristers or you know CEOs and they've got PAs. And the PAs make all their appointments and the PAs pay their bills and the PAs buy the birthday presents and the PAs keep their diary. And you know, they've got they've got access to somebody to help them with some of the organizational things that they struggle with. And you know, the same same can be said of children. They've got the scaffolding from parents who do a lot of these things. That's why you often don't see difficulties emerge until university or, you know, they leave school and do a, take a job. But um, they've had all this support from teachers, from parents. Sometimes you see them fall down on the primary high school cusp because in primary school they've got one teacher who knows them and communicates with the parent and, um, you know, supervises more closely. In high school, you change classrooms, so there's opportunity to lose things. You've got a lot of different teachers. The teachers often don't know the parents. And their organisational difficulties can start to become evident then. And of course, you've had this stupid criteria that you have to have evidence of it before age seven and they increase it to 12. And there's no evidence for an age cutoff. There's just nothing, nothing in the evidence to suggest that if you haven't seen it by then, you haven't got it. It's just arbitrary. Um, because challenges have been manageable up challenges until have been manageable. a certain age. Yeah. yeah, and then somebody goes to university and there's you know, the teacher wouldn't even know their name, um, thousand people in a lecture theatre, you're not even going to university, it's all at home now, you know, you're doing it online and people are really struggling. You know? and, and that's when they often present for the first time. Hmm. So inner developmental history, that might be, that sounds familiar to me, a story where someone might say, you know, I did really well in primary school, everything went really well and then, you know, a couple of years into high school it just got too much and I I started kind of backing off on work and couldn't be bothered anymore. Yes, and so ask for their school reports. I do that as part of my assessment that, you know, I want to know the developmental history. I want to look for things like, um, you know, did they have a normal, was there a normal pregnancy, a normal childbirth, was there apoxia at birth? Um, were there any insults to the brain around the time of birth? Is there a family history of ADHD? Because, you know, you don't always see it, um, but, but, you know, you usually see it or you usually see what looks like it if it hasn't been diagnosed. Um, there's, there's higher rates of learning disorder, higher rates of enuresis. Um, they often have difficulty knowing their left from their right, so I ask about that. They often have difficulty reading an analogue clock, um, telling the time on an analogue clock. None of these things are in DSM and they're not diagnostic, but you see them come up again and again and again. And so, you know, I take this developmental history and I ask about their functioning in school and it's not about their grades because, you know, they can get 99 ATARs. It's not, it's not about their grades. It's about how did you go with things? Did you hand things in? Did you have trouble getting your homework done? Did you lose things? Their reports will say things like, um, you know, would do better if he spent more time, you know, practising or if he handed things in earlier or you see these sorts of things littered through school reports. And there's not many other, I guess, DSM disorders where you get a little summary of the person's functioning twice a year throughout their, their career. As you are speaking then, I was thinking of what that lived experience must be to be always trying your best and then to keep getting that feedback that we can get more from you we can get more from you you know you're you're not working yeah. hard enough you're not doing enough you're not meeting your potential 
when the person really is doing their very best to meet all the demands that they're faced with. Yeah, and this is where it can be, you know, hard for their self-esteem. And and I think there is a discussion to be had about, you know, the notion of early diagnosis and and telling a child about the early diagnosis and is that good for their self-esteem or is that bad for their self-esteem? And and I don't think we have an answer to that. But I see a lot of adults who get diagnosed in adulthood and there's a lot of grief that they have to deal with, uh, saying, gosh, if only I'd known this when I was a kid, when I was a teenager, when I was in uni, whatever. You know, sometimes you see people in their 60s and they're going, Imagine how life would have been different if this had been picked up earlier. And that's a big grieving process that they go through. And sometimes actually when you talk to the parents, sometimes the parents don't want to acknowledge that they've missed the diagnosis. Or have their own diagnosis. Have their own diagnosis, yeah. So, But the notion of telling a child, you know, the value in it to me is A, you can get treatment, but how do you explain it to a child, um, you know, without... No, without saying, you no, know, we think you've got ADHD. And you need to rule out in children, they usually have a sleep study and rule out that it's a sleep disorder. And, you know, in children, if it's mild, you might take a, a CBT approach and a family approach before you do medication anyway. So when I've, you know, my experiences with adults treating adults. Um, but so with children, I think too, if they can grow up thinking, okay, my brain works a bit differently and these things are a bit harder for me, but I'm not a failure as a person, this might have been a hard task, but there's a reason for that. It's like this person's disabled, they're in a wheelchair or, you know, some aspects of the way my brain functions is a bit different. Um, and so that's okay, that's just me and, you know, I, I'm okay. Instead of you're lazy, you know, work harder, um, you know, it might change the school report notes if, if the teachers know. You know, so-and-so has done a really good job and I can see how hard she's been working. Um, you mentioned some books before. We, we, can make, uh, yeah. we can make those names accessible to our listeners uh, on the Facebook page later on. Is there anything else you'd like to add about treating adults with ADHD that we haven't covered already? I think, first of all, I want to say they're great. And they're, they're, they're fabulous people to work with, fabulous clients to work with. Um, and, and I think it's really always, I'm always mindful, it's really hard when we sit here and talk about the treatment of a disorder and all the kind of bad stuff and the symptoms and the issues because, I mean, that's what we do. We don't treat people because they're feeling well. And I, I always worry a bit that it sounds negative and, and, um, and I think, you know, particularly, you know, when people have ADHD in the family, they're probably thinking, oh, no, my goodness, this all sounds very grim and you know I think it's first of all fabulous for getting treatment for, for, for people who have got ADHD because it makes a difference um, it's good to be aware and to know uh, you know what's available and what you can do um, there are successful people with ADHD everywhere in the world they are often curious um, vibrant um, uh, some of them are, you know, better risk takers than, than some of us and, you know, and, and they, they test the boundaries and try new things. Um, they, you know, they could be adventurous. They can be have all the usual good qualities, loving and kind and thoughtful and um, sometimes they can be a bit annoying if they're forgetful and don't turn up and, you know, it can be reliability issues. And, but, 
you know, they're fabulous. I mean, it's fabulous. Um, I love working with ADHD clientele and it's really interesting because you do see every other disorder. And it's hard sometimes um, when I talk to like a friend who's an ADHD coach and all he does is ADHD coaching. I'm thinking, yeah, but I'm learning EMDR and I'm, I love OCD and, and you know, it's great when people have, you know, people have often got other things too, but um, it's interesting, you know, because and particularly when you look at the core of ADHD, I think, and how it impacts on other things, um, it's, you know, it, they're, they're great clientele to work with and it's really validating for people to actually go, oh, wow, so that's, that explains it, <laughs> the light bulb moment. Really? Wow. Never thought about that. I never realised that. Never... So and there can be a period of adjustment. But, um, you know, there's no barriers to people's success with ADHD. Very treatable. Lots of things to do to make their lives better. It's about knowing so that you can actually offer, offer the care that's needed. That's the worst thing is not picking it up and not being able to help because you don't know it's there. Thank you so much, Heidi. I think you've given us a lot to think about and take forward into our work with clients um i'll look forward to reading up on some of the cbt strategies and i think perhaps building in routine assessment into my work as well that'd be great thank you for those ideas (laughs) yeah my pleasure nice to meet you thanks so much bye you can find clinically thinking on all the popular podcast platforms If you've enjoyed the show by Apple Podcasts, we'd appreciate it if you take a moment to leave a favourable review. Reviews help other people find the show and tell new listeners what to expect. You can find more information about our guests or chat about the program at the Clinically Thinking Facebook page. I'm Dr. Lisa Chandler. Thanks for listening.